This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. So, Drew, why do you hate Christmas? <laughs> Here's what I I don't hate Christmas. This is what drives me crazy. I think we all have a drives me crazy point here. But um, is the conflation of essentially what is a winter festival with the Advent. Um, so I would like to think that in our household, we practice both the American winter festival, like where we bring a perfectly good living tree into our house you know, chop it down, put lights on it, and watch it die slowly over the next you know month or so. Um, and then we give gifts in exchange because we're excited because we have so much surplus money that we like to buy things for each other and give gifts. And we like that. That's fine. That's the winter festival. We have all these weird songs that go along with it as well. I'm just not sure why anybody wants to drag Jesus, the son of the living God, into that. Um, and why can't we just let them live parallel to each other? And um, uh, to get side by side, but not confused in the kind of old Christology language. Amy, what do you think about that? (laughs) (laughs) That was great. I mean, I don't think I'm profound enough to have gotten grumpy about the things that Drew is grumpy about yet. Mm. I'm just grumpy that we have Christmas lights up and are drinking eggnog as soon as, you know, November hits because Advent seems to me to be a time about waiting and looking forward to the celebration that comes. And yet the party is starting really early on. So yeah. What is Advent, Amy? Well, Advent. So it comes from the Latin word that means coming. Um, So it is this period of waiting and looking forward. Um, And also looking back. So, I mean, I think most Christians today, if they do think about Advent, just think about, you know, looking back to Jesus being born and put in a manger. But the church traditionally also uh, took the season to look forward to Christ's second coming. And fun fact that I learned, uh, Advent was traditionally a time to think about the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. So, you know, we're all lighting our Advent candles and talking about joy, hope, and peace, but not too many of us are like, friends, this is Judgment Sunday, you know, um, but traditionally, like well, in Drew's church, it's going to be Judgment Sunday soon, <laughs> <laughs> but traditionally, yeah, I think it was more of a time of um, reflection and repentance, and even in some church traditions today, the Eastern church, there's a lot of uh, fasting. Um, so it's a time of waiting and longing and even kind of discomfort. Selena, we didn't hear what you thought about Christmas as an American sport. I'm gen- generally annoyed by Christmas, but I want to disentangle my own personal preferences from like, okay, what actually has value. I I I think it's hard to argue with the fact that I that it's good to have an excuse and like time set aside to go spend time with family, to reconnect to like enjoy meals together, like all these things. The way my family has always celebrated Christmas has involved a reading of the scripture. Um, It's involved modest gift giving. So rather than just like going out and kind of embracing consumerism, it's like, 
here's like a thoughtful thing that probably doesn't cost more than $20, but like it shows that I care about you and it's just like fun to give a gift to someone you love. Um, so I think there's nothing wrong with that. And, 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 you know, there's like the way that Christians kind of shoehorn the winter festival into Christian, Christian, Christianese, Christian ideas. Um, like, okay, Jesus is our gift. So let's give each other's gift, each other huh. gifts, that kind of thing. Um, he I'm is not, the reason for the season. Something that's funny though, <laughs> that I, that I think of now is, Malcolm Gite, he's written for us before and he's written on, he's written a, a book for Advent. And I was listening to a talk of his once and he's like an Anglican rector or minister or priest, I guess he would call himself. And he was in full garb uh, giving a talk to in a church. And he was like, I wish we could take the Christ out of Christmas for a little bit. <laughs> and what he meant was just like, I wish we could, not immediately, as as Amy was saying, as soon as like November rolls around, just start celebrating. Like he wishes that we could kind of get ourselves in the mindset of like the time before Christ came and that sense of walking in darkness um, and embracing like the, just the darkness of December and of the season and the cold and the feeling of that of that longing and that waiting. And then so when once the twenty fifth rolls around, you're actually very excited and you're. Um, you're cultivating a sense of gratitude towards this, uh, this central event in, in Christianity. So I feel like we have two complaints. The first one is why are we celebrating Christmas before Christmas gets here instead of embracing this season of waiting of somberness um, Mm -hmm. and of longing. And then once Christmas gets here, why are we, turning it into this Western secular pagan festival. Consumerism frenzy. There yeah. we go. Although yeah. one thing I want to get on record here is that uh, I, th- I can't remember exactly the context, but we were talking about like Christmas music, I think. And I was like, Oh no, it's, it's November 1st. That means Mariah Carey's all I want for Christmas oh, yeah. is you is going to start playing. And it's just going to be in, on a nonstop loop for like the next 60 days or something. And I was complaining about that, and and no lie, Drew <laughs> Drew says, you know, I like everything Mariah Carey has ever done. So, yeah. just so you know, yeah. if, you want, if you're wondering what to get Drew for for Christmas, and I also started whistling that song outside your cubicle, like mm. from that time forward. Um, I think we're we're kind of ignoring the big fat man uh, in the room uh, here, and uh, not Satan Claus, but. Um, <laughs> the fact, the fact that um, Christmas is not what we consider a biblical holy day. It's not. It's not practiced within Scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, if we only had two of the Gospels, we wouldn't even have Christmas. Uh, we wouldn't even have the stories. Um, mm. But um, it, and it's. I mean, there it is a very early practice though in Christian tradition. So it comes. It comes in within a century at least, um, where it becomes a strong practice and even in the Eastern Western church are already arguing about the date of Christmas um, very early on. So it becomes important very quickly, but the, the fact that it's not actually instructed or uh, cajoled or guided in any way by scripture itself does give me pause on how we think about it. Um, So some people might say, well, since it doesn't say how to do it kind of like weddings, there's no instructions on how to do a wedding. So some people might say, therefore, it's fair game. You can do whatever you want, right? Um, which I think is essentially what we have with Christmas right now. Um, 
but I would, you know, I'd like to argue that there's probably a more modest version of Christmas rituals that, uh, that submits to the idea of, well, what is scripture getting? Why, why do the two Christmas narratives that we get, why do they come in the form and the shape and the emphases that they have? And what are they trying to tell us? Uh, and even, you know, by the time you get to Paul's letters, he, there's already seems to be hymnody that is hinting at the dissension of Christ into the form of a human is actually a key event around which we worship Jesus. So it's not, I'm not saying that it's wrong to have Christmas. I'm not saying that it's wrong to emphasize it. Um, but I think just kind of willy nilly throwing together, well, this is what my family does. This is what my family does. Or mm-hmm. um, like if you, I, I, I dare anybody to explain to me, like, what is the symbology of the dead tree in your living room, right? Um, the best you're going to do is, I, I don't know, we always did this in the, from Europe somewhere. They did, you know, that's like as good as it gets. And so I think we need, um, when it comes to biblical rituals, the symbology is thick and directly connected to the thing that it's discussing. And I think we need something uh, better. And this is why I advocate, just like, do your winter festival, which includes a tree that comes from some European tradition somewhere, right? And do all of that in your glug, in your eggnog or whatever you drink um, and just have fun with it, right? Like do your winter stuff, be uh, fine. Uh, Even if you want to be slightly consumerist, fine. Um, Again, just don't drag baby Jesus into it. So what rituals would you suggest instead of these winter festival rituals? Well, first of all, I'm glad you asked, Amy, because I have a oh, list. You're uh, airing of the grievances would be the primary one, um, and then it doesn't end until somebody pins the the, the father of the household to the ground, uh, and a, an aluminum pole, I think, would be the other thing that I would put in the living room. Would you like to elaborate on the, those suggestions? <laughs> those are all from Festivus. It's a festival uh, for the rest of us. That is Seinfeld, is it? Isn't that it? is Seinfeld. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny because you were talking about like you like the idea that you gather with your relatives. But for a lot of us, uh, not so much anymore, but there was a period in my life where Christmas is actually kind of a traumatizing event as a child. It was mm. it was not a happy time in our household. Um, yeah. And and the idea of getting together with relatives is still traumatizing for a lot of people. Like they dread it. Right. And so. No, that's fair. So everybody kind of comes to the season with different feels, I guess. As it were. A lot of people talk about feeling sad around Christmas because of associated memories and, and things like that, or because they don't have someone to spend Christmas with, or because they do, and that's like their broken family or whatever. So, um, so yeah, it's not, it's even the things you might point out as positive are not necessarily positive. Although I think I've probably have worked through some difficult family, dis- familial disagreements over an extended Christmas break, which didn't always feel great, but was good in the long run. Um, That's the so, functional version. Yeah. yeah. So can we, can we redeem Christmas? I think is the, can we redeem it from the American versions or. So maybe I can try and put a little Hebraic spin on this with a question or maybe it will be a rant. We'll see where it goes. Um, but when I, when most of us think about waiting and looking forward to Christmas, you know, we've talked about the commercial things that, or even the, the non-commercial family things that we look forward to. But I was thinking a little bit about um, in scripture where there's the waiting and the longing for the coming of the Messiah in the first place. Um, and one thing that I, 
that really stood out to me there a few years ago, I was at an Anglican lessons and carols service where I think it's usually 10 passages of scripture that are read leading up to, you know, interspersed with Christmas songs. Um, and the passages that had been selected in this particular service, a lot of them from the prophets um, were very much centered around uh you know, God's redemption of Israel, which is what you have coming out of Isaiah or out of Malachi or out of these, you know, books that we often take and harvest Christmas passages from. And so in a weird way, it almost read more like some, you know, wild Zionist manifesto rather than <laughs> rather than what we typically think of, you know, and then Jesus came and died for my sins. Um, yeah. So I was thinking about it a little bit and even in the Christmas story in Luke, where we have the, you know, perhaps the the most um, beautiful picture of someone waiting. So this Advent imagery, we have Simeon, and um, it says that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, which is not typically what most of us are waiting for around Advent. And even when I was thinking about, you know, Mary's um, song of praise, um, she, you know, uses language like, how God has now filled the hungry with good things. He has helped his servant Israel as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. And then Zechariah comes in and his song of praise is about how the Lord, um, he, you know, blessed is the Lord God of Israel. He's visited and redeemed his people and he's fulfilling his oath to Abraham. So there's all of this language where, you know, the coming of the Messiah is exciting because it's doing something for Israel, not just because, you know, Jesus saved me from my sins and I got presents. Um, so I'd be interested to hear what you guys think about that and how this sort of almost nationalistic kind of waiting, if it has anything to say to the way we think about Christmas today. Um, I would just like to point out that Mary's uh, song, The Magnificat, is a total ripoff of uh, Hannah's song, uh, which is a song of praise a weird song of praise because she's like, yeah, tear down the mighty, smash the mouth of the arrogant, you know, my co-wife is who she's talking about there. But it's because she's been waiting for a child and hasn't been able to get pregnant. And then finally she is. And then she breaks out to the song, which Mary takes. So all those lines you cited are, are actually just from Hannah's song and being repeated from Hannah's song. Mm -hmm. um, but this, if the idea is, is waiting and then a nationalistic story, uh, that it's we're waiting for something nationalistic to happen here. I'm using the term nationalistic in like the broadest sense possible. Um, I, I do think like, okay, well, what of our rituals like help plug us into the kind of Abraham to revelation uh, story of for the nation, for all the nations of the earth. And I, I do think like you go to a songs and carols or lessons and carols um, or even like in my non-denominational church tradition that I became a Christian, you go to the Christmas Eve service. And as you said, where they harvest all the Christmas uh, passages out of the Old Testament, uh, it really does like draw you out of your individual storyline into this much broader for the sake of humanity storyline. But almost for like a fleeting moment until you like you know, you leave the Christmas Eve service and it's like, we can't wait to open presents and it's all back into me, me and what I'm going to get. Right. So like, how do you have a, if I hear you correctly, the question for me would the, then be, how do you sustain the, for the sake of humanity emphasis 
that Christmas actually seems like it's it's actually aimed at. Is that correct? Yeah, and I just think it's really interesting that um, the language that we use to describe our excitement about what Jesus came to do seems to mm. be very different from the language that Simeon or Mary or Zachariah used to explain their excitement. You know, their their vision seems to be, I don't know if I if we want to say more cosmic. I mean, it's definitely beyond the individual, but but I don't know if, if it's even cosmic because it's very much tied up with their understanding of God fulfilling his promises specifically to Abraham and to their their nation. You know, and I think that's kind of a little hard for for us to grasp who maybe don't feel like we're part of that same story. Hmm. So how do we keep a sustained interest in that story? Um, and the, the and I think anytime you're talking about Abraham, you're really talking about all the nations of the earth. I mean, that's how Isaiah sees it, right? Is, you know, what, why is Abraham blessed and tr- God makes a treaty with him? It's for the sake of all the families of the earth. It's not for Abraham. It's certainly not dependent on Abraham's moral behavior. Thank goodness. Um, mm-hmm. cause that would have collapsed almost immediately. Um, so yeah, maybe I can reverse the question and say, are there any practices that are part and parcel of Christmas time that would distract us from that focus, distract us from waiting, distract us from the cosmic purposes of the Christ child and distract us from um, the establishment of God's peace through Israel? Like the consumerism of Christmas can be a distraction from any good thing. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think. I think that's something that Americans um, and other like wealthy countries probably just have to fight against in general. Um, I mean, when any holiday rolls around, there's always like this element of like this pressure to spend and this pressure to focus, to focus too much on the material. And that's kind of a trite point at this, at this point, but, um, but maybe for some like Christian families, it actually would be more of a radical step to not do presents or to, to do fewer presents and to, to spend less time thinking about that. Um, because maybe it's so much a part of their family culture to kind of just fully embrace every element of American Christmas. Um, so, I mean, I do like, I do still appreciate the fact that my family was always more modest in, in that with, with presents and that like, my parents thought Santa Claus was stupid and uh, told me, <laughs> told Wait, me we should talk about why Santa Claus is stupid. <laughs> well, I think for them, they thought it was stupid just because I guess for them, it was because it distract again, distracted from, from the story of Jesus, just to be so focused on like this strange man who came in and uh, brought stuff for you. Um, well, I don't, you'll have it to wasn't... spell it out even further. Like why would an omniscient judge of children uh, be distracting <laughs> from the story of Jesus. I don't understand. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, yeah, they don't, they did, I don't think it was thought of in that in those terms. It was more just about like. Uh... It's because they didn't teach you the right Santa Claus. I mean, Saint Nicholas. He was so oh. cool. He went around giving gifts to you know poor girls that couldn't afford a dowry. And then legend has it, though I'm told this is probably not true, that he slapped yeah, a heretic in one of the with, church yeah. councils. Yeah, wow. that, and there's a conflation of like four different Saint Nicholases because there's not just one. Uh, well, the one I believe in slaps heretics, <laughs> and that's how I celebrate Christmas. Actually, can I make a biblical argument for why you shouldn't tell your children that there's Santa Claus? 
Yeah, go for it. That I actually think is a, is a legitimate point from the Torah. Um, if there's one thing the Torah hates, it's exploiting people at their point of vulnerability. Like that's if you were to put it in, if you were to put it in one like grand principle, mm. and there is only one reason that you tell children there's a Santa Claus. Because if you told a 30 year old there's a Santa Claus, like they came to America, is like, oh, you haven't heard of Santa Claus, and you start describing him, he'd be like, yeah, that's not real, right? That's that's fake. Um, yeah. The only reason you tell children is because they trust you, um, and so that your first, so you're like pulling together Jesus plus rituals, plus family time, plus a big lie. Mm -hmm. And then you find out that everybody was in on it except for you. It's horrible. It is horrible. It didn't happen to me. My parents did not tell me that there was Santa Claus. I didn't tell my kids, but, um, but I know people who will say after I found out there was no Santa Claus, my only thought was what else are they lying about? Um, yeah. And, and actually, I'm, but my parents told me like, you can't, like, if you have friends who believe in Santa Claus, you can't tell them that Santa right. Claus isn't real. Like you right. have, and so it's just like this feeling of like, I'm woke to something and everyone else right. is like living yeah. in darkness. I'm woke, and strange. now I'm complicit in a, in a grand yeah, lie. Exactly. <laughs> so you were saying that the consumerism is more like a general problem. I mean, all of our birthdays, yeah. Easter, what what have you, like the, the general consumer is bent is, is just a generic problem of, yeah. of Western celebration. And um and so really probably we don't have to although it's excessive in Christmas, I think, uh in America at least. Yeah. How about best practices? What what are things that seem to help people to to embrace waiting? I even the judging, you know, Amy, what you said about like this idea that judgment comes along with it. Um, you know, like the issue that we wait along with the dead for, you know, uh, for the return of Christ along with those who have died. We, mm -hmm. we also wait, uh, alongside them, um, for the second coming, the first coming, coming anticipates the second coming. Yeah. Like, it seems like there's all kinds of theologically rich things we could be doing, or maybe that some mm -hmm. people are doing that not all of us are. Um, so avoiding the distraction, but then what's the pro-social behavior we should be embracing well i i do like go through an advent book and i like participate in my church's advent celebrations and i mean again i go to an Anglican church so we use the collects from the book of common prayer and like accompanying scripture and it is and i mean it is like as you were saying drew it's a it's an improvisation it's not something that's like scripture directly commands uh, us to do at this time of year or anything. But um, I think it, as I've participated more in that tradition, uh, it's definitely been easier to, to focus on like the anticipation of the second coming and how do I use my time wisely and not get distracted by things that are shallow. So following an Advent liturgy, you're, you know, we're, we're actually saying you don't have to invent this from scratch. You can exactly you know, follow one that exists. And if you don't like it, you can modify, you know, if you think yeah. it's missing something, right. You can, I'm going to guess it has no proverbs in it. Um, so mm -hmm. maybe I would put proverbs in there as well or something, but mm -hmm. something I think is kind of interesting is, I mean, we're all sitting here being grinchy about mm -hmm. Christmas, but Going back to some of those passages that I read, um, they're actually very earthy and material and mm -hmm. sort of 
luxurious in their promises. You know, Mary's not just sitting there saying that, you know, God has, you know, adjusted her soul to make it spotless and holy. She's talking about being filled with good things, you know, and um, the hungry that are filled with good things, which, you know, we all have Christmas feasts and this is, it's, something very materialistic, but something I think God delights in. Mm -hmm. So I actually wonder if, um, you know, there is room as we meditate on what Christ came to do. And as we meditate on how Christ came in the flesh to actually rejoice in sort of a different and more educated way about, um, God's love of the body and God's love of the physical world and God's redemption that comes, you know, not just to save our souls and zap us into outer space, but actually to remake this world and this broken creation in a new way. Um, Some friends and I decided this Advent, we're going to work through um, Athanasius's on the incarnation and just use that to sort of guide our thinking. And so we were talking about it last night, the first couple chapters. And one thing that stood out to me is, um, yeah, that salvation is bodily that, you know, Jesus, it, it wasn't just through Jesus doing something in the realm of the spirit that we get to have intimacy and communion with God. It's because he took on a body and did things with the body and like, you know, his lungs stopped breathing and there was like actual blood that, you know, flowed out of him and through that we're saved. And so I think, you know, as much as I like to be a Grinch, I think there's also room to just celebrate the bodily things that God has done and that can include gifts and that can include, you know, good food, but it can also include us having a bigger view of God's salvation. And that does include death and judgment, but it also includes, you know, heaven and the resurrection of the body. Yeah. If the question is why did Jesus come part, part of the answer is he came to judge the living and the quick and the dead, as they like to say in the old English. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can't ever leave that out. Um, yeah, what were you going to say, Selena? Well, I was just thinking again because I mentioned Malcolm Guy earlier, and he's written sonnets in response to um, first-century church Advent prayers, known as the O Antiphons, and these prayers, um, among other things. Uh, address Christ by the by titles from the Old Testament, particularly in Isaiah. And I think so. I would actually love to quickly read one of the antiphons and one of the sonnets that he wrote in that Malcolm Guy wrote in response. Um, but I just the broader point being, and Amy alluded to this earlier, but it's like it is um, maybe a chance. Advent could be a chance for the church to think again about Israel's history and like our grafting into that story. Um, And so without further ado, the, this one, this antiphon um, I'll read first and then I'll read Malcolm Geith's sonnet in response. O root of Jesse standing as a sign among the peoples before you Kings, before you Kings will shut their mouths To you, the nations will make their prayer. Come and deliver us and delay no longer. 
and then the sonnet. All of us spring from one deep hidden seed, rose from a root invisible to all. We knew the virtues once of every weed, but severed from the roots of ritual, we surf the surface of a widescreen world and find no virtue in the virtual. We shrivel on the edges of a wood whose heart we once inhabited in love. Now we have need of you, forgotten root, the stock and stem of every living thing, whom once we worshipped in the sacred grove. For now is winter, now is withering, unless we let you root us deep within, under the ground of being, graft us in. So I think that severed from the root of ritual, of course that stands out because even before you read that, I thought, um, I don't know that we need to think more about Christmas. I don't mm-hmm. know if we need to reflect more about Christmas or at least not in like the g- general way that people think about those terms. But um, if the goal is to develop a sense of waiting, then I, if, if I were just like to improvise right now as a pastor mm-hmm. like, Hey, we're going to, we want to think more about waiting. We want to actually re- theologically think about waiting. So we're going to have a waiting service where we're, we're just going to sit for an hour in silence. Mm-hmm. But, you know, theological thinking is embodied, obviously. Um, and so I, I, I hesitate. I know that getting people together and reading things and reflecting on them is an embodied ritual. Like, I know that that's all part of embodied ritualism. But I think mm-hmm. there are creative ways in which you could uh, get the things that we really want people to reflect upon without a doing what we're doing right now, having a diatribe about it or a, a monologue or, you know, mm-hmm. like I'm going to say this, I'm going to give you three points to reflect on, you know, and um, that there are other ways to skin that cat, I guess. I don't know if that transfers to Canadian, but. We try not to skin cats as much right. as possible. They're nice. Well, apparently they are. there are, there are many ways to skin a cat. So uh, <sighs> I only know one, but apparently there are many. Uh... <laughs>